The story is often told that Bethlehem, Pennsylvania was founded in song. Christmas Eve, 1741, we're told, a small group of Moravian settlers gathered together, doing what was so important in their lives. They were singing a hymn, one that included these words, not Jerusalem, lowly Bethlehem. Music has been woven into the warp and weft of the community all these centuries. The Bach Choir of Bethlehem gave the first performance of the B minor Mass by Johann Sebastian Bach. And the chorus continues to bring Bach to the world, to the very present. And we'll use music as metaphor as we meet an artist who has immersed himself in the history and life of Bethlehem for the past two years. And we'll turn to Bach to begin. Carol Berger contends that Bach was the last great composer in the canon to have served primarily as a church musician and arguably the last one to have made the musical embodiment of the church's outlook his main business. Like his church, he was fully aware of the linear unfolding of human biographical and historical time, and also, like his church, he believed this time to be enveloped by God's eternity, subordinated to it. In a number of central instances, his music displays a double time sense, developing up-to-date goal-directed momentum, but relativizing and subordinating its forward propulsion to a sense of cyclical or entirely timeless stasis worthy of his medieval predecessors. It was this sort of double-time sense that Wagner captured in his apt image of a Bach fugue as a crystal flying like a bullet. Bach's preference for God's eternity over human time is all the more dramatic precisely because he was able to capture the linear drive in his music. That from Carol Berger's study, Bach's Cycle, Mozart's Arrow, giving us perhaps a simplified sense of what experience of time might have been favored in an early Moravian community like Bethlehem. Berger recognizes the social and cultural and political changes that have occurred in the Western world since then, citing a painting by Tiepolo titled The New World. Tiepolo observes from behind a thoroughly modern crowd assembled to gawk at a spectacle made possible by the newest technological medium, a magic lantern displaying the exotic marvels of the new world. These humans are not subject to an eternal, unchanging order. On the contrary, they are children of a unique historical moment, their gaze fixed on a dimly imagined future, a new emerging world. Tiepolo's time is linear, progressive, oriented toward the future. One might go further and say that Tiepolo contemplates the human condition with detached irony. Ah. Oh. So the Western world is beginning to move in the direction of industrialization and all the change that entails. We'll fast forward to the present day 
where Carol Berger observes that fine music is being written in all genres now, but he believes we're experiencing a flood of ever-new products of what can only be called the music entertainment industry. And since all such products embody human desires and aspirations, we fear rightly that to discriminate among them is to discriminate among people. And we are most reluctant to distinguish art from entertainment, the former a mirror in which we can see better who we are, the latter an amusement allowing us some respite from ourselves. He concludes, there is plenty of money to be made in the entertainment industry, and it is only natural that people who stand to profit promote their products at the expense of all competition. We do not, though, have available many forms of cultural discourse, forms such as music, art, philosophy, and religion, that would allow us seriously to reflect on who we are, and a society that trades these few for entertainment is foolish. Strong feelings on the part of Carol Berger, who believes we are all the poorer for seeking a sense of meaning in the shallowness and flashiness of superficial entertainments. It is serendipitous that artist Shimon Atti studied music to begin with. He played Bach and other Baroque favorites and explored works by Alexander Scriabin, who lived from 1871 to 1915. Shimon Atti is Horger Artist-in-Residence at Lehigh University in Bethlehem in the Department of Art, Architecture, and Design, and he has created an artwork which interrogates Bethlehem's past and present as a microcosm of America. The completed piece is a hybrid video and sculptural installation which complicates and conflates Bethlehem's serpentine layers. The piece is composed of a central sculptural element centered in between two channels of synchronized video. The sculpture is inspired by the existing 90-foot-tall, brightly lit Bethlehem star on the hill built by the Bethlehem Chamber of Commerce in 1937 as a commercially-minded endeavor to brand Bethlehem as the Christmas city. The star on the hill is brightly lit and on a clear evening is visible for 60 miles. Shimon Atti is an internationally known visual artist whose practice includes creating site-specific installations in public places and immersive multiple-channel video and mixed-media installations. For two decades, Atti has made art that allows us to reflect on the relationship between place, memory, and identity. Among his many accomplishments, Atti has developed works of public art in Berlin, Tel Aviv, Rome, New York, and San Francisco. His work has been featured in many exhibitions, including at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City, the Centre Georges Pompidou in Paris, the Art Institute of Chicago, and the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C. He is a recipient of the Rome Prize and the Guggenheim Fellowship and holds the Lee Krasner Lifetime Achievement Award in Art. We have mentioned Bach along the way because we'll learn that artist Shimon Atti has created a multifaceted installation that may just allow us to consider something like the experience of time we spoke of in Bach's music, of the collapse of that vision and understanding, and ultimately to ways we as humans are searching for meaning in our time. 
We had a chance to speak by Zoom with Shimon Ati in advance of the opening on September 13th for his current exhibition, Starstruck, an American Tale, at the Lehigh University Art Galleries on the campus in Bethlehem. And we began with his creative pursuits as a child. When I was really young, it mostly took the form of music. I played classical piano and violin before I switched to visual art, but there was there was always a creative engine within me from a young age. What were the composers who were talking to you in those days? Oh, the composer. Well, I loved Baroque music. You know, Bach, Handel, Vitali, a long, long list. And I liked, I liked early music. I also liked some of the Russian, more contemporary, like 19th century, like Scriabin, people like that. So it kind of had a wide range. It's intriguing to see how many dimensions you work with, video and photography mm. and all of the sound and the performance arts. Did that expand as you grew as an artist? Yeah, it did. It did. When I went to art school and got my, my MFA, my Master of Fine Arts, is in, in California, where I'm from originally. I mean, I've lived in New York for a long time, but I am a Californian. But when I, when I went to art school, I focused on photography. Kind of and it included a little video, but it was mostly like lens-based still images, and that's where I started. And very quickly, I expanded to include installations, meaning environmental pieces, pieces that pieces outside of the two-dimensional frame of a photograph. And then there's sort of ceased to be a difference between the two for me. They were all extensions of the same ideas, just sort of given different forms. San Francisco is certainly an intriguing geographical, topological space. Were you already connecting with place, the city, the buildings? Every time you turn a corner, San Francisco can be a new experience, the water around it. Were you always sensitive to place in that way? Um, in, a, in an odd way, not. Because, I, you know, when you, grow up, when you grow up immersed in something, it's sort of part of your everyday oxygen that you breathe and you're, you're a little less aware of it. It wasn't until I came back after living in Europe for many years, and you know, I came back to San Francisco and I, I, did, a, I did a project in San Francisco at that time. And that's when I really began to connect with it more with sort of some distance and fresh eyes. And then more recently, I did a, a large scale installation piece in San Francisco Bay. Did you see that? The one with the boats and the images of the refugees. Yeah, it started in New York. And then this past fall, it was given a second life and was represented fresh in San Francisco Bay, which was really wonderful for me. That's just extraordinary because you're using the water as a basis, as a medium, the ship, the screen, the images of the refugees. And I think that what's so important, and we can talk about it if you don't mind a little bit, the way sure. that you deal with in your work very hard subjects like refugees and the AIDS crisis mm -hmm. and war mm -hmm. and, of course, the Holocaust. And yet the work you do is so humane. You really have a sense of respect for the individuals, for example, these refugees. There's no sense of trying to use whatever subject you're working on for an art project. Right. No, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say this. And this is sort of what I what I put a lot of effort into, which is not in any way to exploit people who just do not need to be exploited anymore. And one of the best ways of, of avoiding that trap 
is for me to have very large ears, <laughs> you know, that I'm, I'm, lis I'm listening. I am not centering myself within a, this context. I'm listening. And to the extent that I'm able to be the long arms, visually perhaps, of a community or help, helping them find new ways of being represented, et cetera. But it does take a very delicate touch sometimes, especially when I work with communities that have been traumatized. Where does that sensitivity for people who are suffering come from? Is that something you grew up with or were you always a lad who cares? I think so. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's who, who I am. So, you know, oddly, it's, it, it's a very personal question in a certain way because it's, it goes to the core of, you know, my, my makeup, my emotional wiring and ethical center and, and whatnot. Before I went to art school, I was a psychotherapist, uh, not for a very long time, but long enough to get my license and, and practice for some years. I mention that because People sometimes think, oh, my work is affected by the fact that I was a psychotherapist. But I always come back and clarify and say, no, whatever it was in me that was drawn at that time to doing psychotherapy is the same me that's drawn to being an artist. It, it's sort of me, I'm the common denominator, not, not the other elements. Well, we know you spent time in Europe and you have remarkable experiences there and created remarkable bodies of work out of those experiences. And anyone who is listening to us should certainly explore your work in Berlin and the projections on the buildings. But you've also documented that experience with photographs of your own so that even if the project is over in terms of the environmental aspect of it, we can still have some level of experience with that. Well, that's that's what I aim for, you know. I I kind of refuse a certain a certain kinds of binaries, and and one is it's either a strong ethereal temporary work, or it's something categorically different, and it's a permanent piece in this that and the other. And I think that ideas can live in more than one form as long as they do so effectively in each. So, which is to say that, as I said, I come from photography, so. I put a lot of energy into trying to create artistic documentation or let's say artworks that can stand on their own independent of the original installation so that long after the event on site is over, there's still a, an afterlife. And that's, that's very important to me. Well, we were talking just now about Germany and we know that Bethlehem, Pennsylvania has its roots in Central Europe and the Moravians. And so we want to ask you to help us understand how you have excavated the many layers of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Did you know anything about Bethlehem when you landed there? No, I was probably like a typical American. If you had asked me what I knew about Bethlehem, I just would have said Bethlehem Steel, that it had been one of the capitals of the American steel industry. And like much of uh, industrial America, it eventually collapsed. Uh, and then there was sort of post-industrial economic catastrophe. And then where do you go from there? How does one rebuild and reinvent oneself? And that's a significant bit to know about, right? But I, I, I had no idea about the Moravians and, and the, the founding of Bethlehem. You know, there, it was their intention, right, to make it the Bethlehem of North America referencing Bethlehem in, in, in the Middle East. And then, of course, I did not know that after the steel collapsed 
and Bethlehem still went bankrupt. I did not know that the history of Sheldon Adel, the late Sheldon Adelson coming into Bethlehem and buying up part of the ruins of the steel plant and turning it into a casino. So those layers from this sort of the, the utopian, utopian religious, if somewhat fundamentalist founding to, to 100 years of industrialization, to post-industrial collapse, and then reinvention through the form of casino capitalism. This was, um, for an outsider, this is like deeply fascinating. So these are some of the anchors of the artwork, you know, starstruck in American Tale that's at the gallery, trying to kind of engage those layers in a way, obviously, that has some poetic oxygen in it. I, th there's no point of view. I, do, I, don't, I don't intentionally express a point of view. I hopefully might provide the possibility for people in Bethlehem and the Lehigh Valley to maybe experience their place in a new way, right? That's that's the goal. You know, art has the ability to help us grow and to stretch in different ways. So, so hopefully, it, hopefully it does that. The wonderful thing is that we have little glimpses online, little previews of what we might be seeing or experiencing when we come to the gallery. And the thing that you do when you've talked about the arc of the history, the Moravians and the industrial and the collapse and then the casinos, you also involve individuals who are in photographs or might be in videos that are representatives of those different eras. So we see women we would assume would be Moravians with their bonnets and long dresses looking very 1740s, that era. And then we see the hazmat fellow like outer space. Uh, steel worker. There's also that current religious sense where we're actually with a present-day person in a religious space from an earlier time. So you're playing with time in that realm where we see individuals separately, but then there's that one picture in front of the old, old building where everybody's together. Right. In front of the tannery building in the colonial industrial quarter down by the river. Yes. Well, you know, basically... The first thing I did when I was invited to do a project, I, I read a lot of I read a lot of books about Bethlehem. So I, you know, I sort of was doing deep, deep research in that sense. And then I started coming to Bethlehem. Every few months I would take another trip and then get progressively longer and 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 more complex. But ultimately, the concept that emerged for me was in fact, it, it's a multimedia installation. This is what people will see at the gallery that combines video. Two, two channel video with a central sculpture. The sculpture is an exact replica. It's an exact 100% clone of the Bethlehem star on the hill. But instead of being 90 feet tall, it's 11 feet tall because the ceiling at the gallery is 12 feet tall. But we, I mean, we worked with the departments of architecture and design at Lehigh University with CAD drawings and we, we absolutely reproduce it, except Besides the fact that it's, that it's 11 feet tall, and I, I don't want to give too much away, it's, it's better there be some surprise, but I'll, I'll just say that the lighting is modified. The Bethlehem Star on the Hill can only do white, sort of white, sort of a pop, kind of pious Christmas white light. The one in the gallery, the lighting is modified to have many different associations and to kind of engage some of these different layers that I've mentioned. But as for the video, the, the idea was, 
you know, how can I engage all these different myriad layers of Bethlehem with also the different facets of its, of its present day communities? So I, I picked six individuals or we select, it took a few months, but we decided upon six different individuals who represented different anchors in this, in this topography of Bethlehem. One was a, a Moravian woman in period clothing who you mentioned. One was a, a gospel singer who, who's also a member of the Moravian church. One was a former steel worker. One, one was a nurse practitioner who, who works in the ER at the Lehigh Valley Health Network, the big hospital there. One was a young, a young woman of color. And, oh, the blackjack dealer. Yes, that's right. So, the, the, so there are the six. And we filmed them at a few different, what I felt to be kind of iconic sites that distilled and encapsulated much of this sort of really interesting, sometimes contradictory history. So we filmed them at the base of the Bethlehem Star. We filmed them in the sanctuary and, and also the mezzanine of the, of the Central Moravian Church. We filmed them in front of the Tannery Building, an, an old Moravian building down by the river. And last but not least, we filmed them at the steel, at the, the, the steel stacks. But with very modified lighting, we, you know, we made it very, very cinematic. And then a few other places. We filmed the nurse practitioner at the hospital where he works. And uh, there are some other like B-roll type shots from a Moravian pharmacy from the 19th century and a couple of places like that. Sometimes art, art functions by what you don't say, right? Then what you do say. You can give too much. But like the, the nurse practitioner. And there are some scenes in the video that imply a certain kind of urgency with, with him. And it, it kind of resolves itself into like a breathing. There's like a trope, like a, a ventilator, a, a ventilator balloon. And I was thinking about, obviously, I was thinking about COVID without saying it. And I was thinking about, I can't breathe without saying it directly. So many of the decisions that I made, there was this sort of soup in the background of, of different contemporary issues, you know, in the air right now that I was wanting to somehow give some expression to or as a minimum to include in the project so so this installation it does it does tag team between the two channel video and then the, the video then hands hands itself off to the star the star turns on it does its light show turns off goes back to the video etc the whole piece is about 19 minutes long and all of the music in it is, is actually moravian yes it, it's all moravian music so, you know, I'm, I'm very happy that it's coming to fruition. I mean, we worked on this, it feels like almost two years, maybe a year and a half, but a long time. And the idea that music is a part of it is critical because music was right there from the founding moment, if we know the story, about being there on Christmas Eve, singing the hymn, Not Jerusalem, Lowly Bethlehem. Music was so important to the Moravians. Right, right. And you know, sometimes when an artist is doing a project early on in the research, you don't know why, what you're digging for or why you're digging for things. But I ended up getting like, I think about eight different music CDs of Moravian music. And I was just sort of listening to them. Way back then, I had no idea why I was doing that. And in fact, there were some jewels from them, courtesy of the Moravian Music Foundation, that ended up in the piece. So it, it was kind of interesting to, to see how it all sort of settled in place. And the thing too that we notice, there are some images that are simply exquisite. Portraits, dark, dark lighting, beautiful faces at an angle or 
the abstract nature of some of the ruins or some of the steel works and so forth that are fascinating patterns as well as having the greater reference to where they are from. So you have an eye for beauty as well. And I wanted to ask you about that sense of beauty because you do not avoid pain. Now, this is not as painful a subject as some of the other projects you've worked on, but you do have an eye for beauty. Right. I mean, I'm glad I'm glad you say that. And it's it's actually, you know, I, I always have to remind people that first and foremost, I'm an artist. I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not like a historian or a politician. I'm an artist and one of an artist's main languages is a visual language. And I, I'm a strong believer in eye candy, you know, beauty for the eyes. And I that's what art that's what us artists can do. And, you know, I, I often say that I, I feel that my intention is not to create, n- not to transmit information that we already know, it's to maybe do it in a way where we have a, an, an opportunity to experience it in a new way. And, and aesthetics, aesthetics and visual beauty and the, and the poetry of that is part of our, is, is the tool, you know, in terms of oxygenating fixed positions or assumptions or yeah, I already know all that, you know, whatever, whatever it would be. But, but I'm a strong believer in eye candy. Also, what about the sense of past, present? You talked about the things that are on our minds in the society mm-hmm. today and the issues and evoking them in a subtle way. When we are looking and experiencing your work, what about the future? What is the prompt where we might open up and say, we don't have to be locked into that, or maybe there's something more that's possible, or what do we hope for? Right. Well, that's, that's the thing is defying expectations. Oh, I thought I knew what it meant to be a refugee or what a refugee might feel like, or what a, um, a nurse practitioner in the time of COVID might feel like. I, I think that when you create a work that is emotionally complex enough so that the viewer is left with questions rather than having been sort of fed, you know, fed some simplistic emotional answers. I think that's what starts to sort of make space and everything sort of rearranges itself around that. But I, you know, I, I do want to say though, that I, I'm not, in, I'm not, People, they look at my work and they think, oh, it's very political or it's very socially oriented. And not that those things aren't true, but I'm not really working instrumentally. I'm not, I'm not doing A with the thought that B will happen. I kind of don't work that way. And I'm, I'm, I'm humble in terms of what the capacity of art is. And if I'm too humble, then great. If I, if I lowball it, that, that's fine. But I hope that the work actually, that it reaches people and is moving for them and, you know, gives them an experience that they won't forget. That's why the, the visual language is so important. That's why the music is so important. You know, I, I hope that some people who see the installation at the gallery will have a sense of wonderment because there is some magic that we're trying to create because Bethlehem is an amazing place. And so, so hopefully some of that gets reflected in the artwork. And you didn't shy away from the symbolism of the star. The star can be that symbol of wonder, right? Um, Well, the star is, yeah, I mean, yes, it is. It is. I think when you see the actual piece, you know, it it gets complicated because at times it's, it's a symbol of wonder. 
And at other times, it's a reflection of sort of casino capitalism. And there's a tension between those two and a kind of a struggle that goes back and forth. And this is simply me being trying to be a mirror in terms of, of the situation in Bethlehem. It's probably also kind of amusing on some level. And also when the fellow in, it's not a hazmat suit, but protective gear, protecting from those sparks and those eruptions out of the furnaces, that's another example of kind of a star-like image that is maybe amazing to see, but also could kill the person who's working in front of the furnace. True, true, true. I mean, I, I I was obviously very aware of the fact that the uniform that people wore that he that he wears in the artwork it, it is kind of cosmological right is, is he a steel worker or is he an astronaut there, there's that sort of ambiguity that leaves some room for interpretation thank, thankfully how were the students yeah. involved in the whole process because that's so much a part of what lehigh and its galleries want to do is involve the students yes well they've been several of them have been very centrally involved especially as relates to the star sculpture. Everything from, we had a couple of students who made the CAD drawings of the star on the hill. I mean, they went up there and they, you know, they did absolutely precise detailed drawings from which other students in the design lab at Lehigh University, as well as a couple of their professors, they then proceeded to build a 11 foot tall replica. It took a long time. I mean, it was not, it was a complicated project. It took about, I think about a year, maybe nine months. I mean, it took a long time for them to construct it. And then the lighting, the light display on the star, again, which I don't want to say too much about it, but there is quite a bit of razzle-dazzle, I'll put it that way. That was also, two students were centrally involved in that, helping me design the razzle-dazzle as well as program it into the star. And... You know, so so there there was at least four or five different students that were very centrally involved all along, along the way, and a couple of their professors. The show is open. It runs to December 3rd, and you'll be back pretty soon. There's no events until September 13th, and, and that's when I'm there. And it starts at 5.30 with, I give a, I give a short presentation in Baker Hall and the Zollner Center. And then we all move to the gallery at around 6.30. And then there's an opening reception. Internationally known artist, Shimon Ati, Orger artist in residence at Lehigh University in Bethlehem in the Department of Art, Architecture and Design, and he has created an artwork which interrogates Bethlehem's past and present as a microcosm of America. The exhibition that has opened at the Lehigh University Art Gallery's main gallery is titled Starstruck, An American Tale. And as we just heard, there will be an artist talk and reception this Tuesday, September 13th at 5.30 p.m. The talk first in Baker Hall, and then moving to the reception at the Luag Main Gallery, all in the Zollner Art Center on the campus of Lehigh in Bethlehem. For more information on the web, luag.lehigh.edu. Starstruck, an American tale, an exhibition of work by Shimon Ari, the installation we just heard described and it is on display now through December 3rd, 
with the Artist Talk and Reception this Tuesday, September 13th at 5.30 p.m. in Baker Hall and the Luag Main Gallery. And that's on the campus of Lehigh University in Bethlehem. For more information, on the web, luag, L-U-A-G, luag.lehigh.edu.